Uh, So we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus lays out a vision for us of what it means to be his disciple. What does it mean to follow Christ and, and know him and love him? Jesus brings definition to that in this sermon. And this morning, our text is going to address this issue of forgiveness. And so I'm by, by now, I'm, I'm sure that you are all aware of the case of Larry Nasser, the man who was recently convicted of sexual assault as part of Team USA Gymnastics. He was the doctor for the national team as well as at Michigan State University. And I'm also sure that you've probably seen the videos of his victims confronting him at his sentencing hearing. And the final person to address Nasser was Rachel Denhollander. And I sent out this video to, to the church this week, and, and I'm guessing you probably have seen it. But in this video, we see her powerfully speaking to Nasser. And this is why it was so powerful. One, she did not minimize a thing. Like she spoke clearly and directly about the evil that he inflicted on well over 200 young girls and women. But what was also powerful is that she spoke the gospel of Christ. She did not minimize evil, yet she held up the forgiveness that is found in Christ through faith and repentance. And she even offered her own forgiveness to her abuser. And so I'm wondering, how could a person do that? What leads a person to be able to look someone who's inflicted such evil on them in the eye and offer forgiveness? What empowers someone to forgive? This is a question that is relevant to us all because the reality of life is this. You're going to get sinned against. Someone is going to sin against you. Someone is going to harm you. Someone is going to do something to you that is painful. You cannot escape it. It's one of the most common things that you will face, as common as breathing, but probably one of the most difficult dynamics you will ever have to endure. For disciples of Jesus, it is absolutely essential. It is part of our identity. We are those who forgive. So what empowers us to do this? What empowers us to forgive from the slightest little offenses all the way up to massive evil such as sexual abuse? Well, this is what Jesus says to us this morning. Forgiven people forgive others. It is those who have experienced deep forgiveness themselves that are empowered to forgive. So here's how I want to unpack forgiveness this morning. Three things. The why, the what, and the how. Why we forgive, what forgiveness is, and then how we forgive. So let's look at the why here first. Why do we forgive others? Well, simply put, we forgive because we need to be forgiven. The root of our forgiveness to others is in the fact that we are those who need to be forgiven. So if we're going to understand our call to forgive others, we have to understand our own need for forgiveness. And we can't gloss over this point. We can't pass over it too quickly. Because if we miss this, then our ability to forgive others can be stunted. So in Matthew 6, 12, as we saw last week, Christ teaches his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts. So scripture likens our sin to a debt. We are those who are in debt to God because of our sin. See, since Adam and Eve chose 
to define good and evil for themselves and rebel against God, we all have been living lives of rebellion. We have been in abject rebellion to God and his glory and his goodness and his love and his mercy and his justice. We set our own standards of good and evil. We're prideful and selfish. We use others for our own ends. We use others to gratify our desires. We use others to build our own kingdoms. How we wreck people with our anger. We can be manipulative. We lie, we cheat, we steal. Oh, our sin is great. Our debt to God is great. It's not like the little debt that you get when you charge some clothes on your credit card. It's not even a medium-sized debt like if you take out a loan for a house or a car. It's more akin to being on the hook for the national debt. So currently the national debt in the U.S. is like $20 trillion. And so the average household income in the United States is a little over $59,000 a year. And so if you were to take all of your income, that means nothing for yourself, all of your income and put towards the national debt, it would only take you 400 million years to pay it off. That is our debt to God, impossible to pay. No amount of small, paltry, good works can ever pay the debt of sin that we owe to God. And it's when we recognize our immense debt and guilt before God that we understand we're those who need to be forgiven. And it answers the question why we forgive. We forgive because we are those in greater need of forgiveness. Like we're not better than the people who sin against us. We're not better than those who are in debt to us. In fact, no matter how badly we are sinned against, it pales in comparison to our sin against God. This doesn't minimize the sin that's been inflicted on you. It just puts things in perspective. So consider this. If, if I were to go to the Durham Museum here in Omaha, and, and I were to go and find like their most expensive piece of art there, in the millions, maybe tens of millions, maybe, maybe 100 million, I don't know. But if I were to go there and deface that, I would be wrecking something valuable. No minimizing that. But if I were to go to the Louvre in Paris and deface the Mona Lisa, that's something entirely different. You can't put a price tag on the Mona Lisa. And so to say that we have a far greater debt than someone else or to God than those who have sinned against us is not to minimize sin. It's just to say we have defaced something far more glorious. No matter how much we have been defaced, we have defaced something far more glorious. Our guilt before God is far greater than other people's guilt before us. And that should lead us to forgive. And this is Jesus's point in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will you forgive, nor your, your father forgive your trespasses. Now let's be clear about what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying you earn forgiveness through forgiving others. Forgiveness is something that God gives us freely and graciously, as we're going to see here in a second. Rather, he's saying this, if you for, refuse to forgive someone, it could be that you have never experienced the forgiveness of God. You are in danger of the judgment of God because you've never experienced the forgiveness of God because forgiven people forgive others. And so when we lose sight of the debt that we owe God, 
it begins to stunt our ability to forgive. And so if you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart, you need to ask this question. Have you experienced the forgiveness and grace of God? When you get a chance, we're not going to go there this morning, but if you get a chance, go to Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 through 35. Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Jesus goes hard at those who self-righteously lose sight of the fact that they need to be forgiven a greater debt and won't forgive others. And so it is the, the truth that we have violated the glory of God, that we are in an unpayable debt before God, and we are in absolute need of his forgiveness. It is the why we forgive others. So what is forgiveness? We have defined the why we need forgiveness and why we need to forgive others. Now let's look at the what. What exactly is forgiveness and what does it entail? Well, here's the basic definition of the word forgiveness. To release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. To be forgiven means that the legal or moral obligation or consequence or punishment you and I rightly deserve because of our sin has been removed. We're no longer held under or held to that punishment or consequence. The person I have sinned against has released me from it. Now, this is a helpful starting place. But it doesn't give us the entire biblical picture of what forgiveness is. Scripture talks a lot more about the forgiveness of God towards us than it does about our forgiveness of other people. And so we need, if we're going to understand forgiveness properly, we need to have a full understanding of what the forgiveness of God is. And so this basic definition is a starting point, but we need to fill this out a little bit. So let's look at the, de- the description of God's forgiveness. And I'm going off of a book called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Braun. Highly recommend this book. But let me warn you, it is an emotionally exhausting read. I'm just going to put that out there. Highly recommend it, but just know it's going to put your emotions through the ringer. He does a fantastic job of walking through scripture and unpacking the definition and description of God's forgiveness as revealed in scripture. And so here are the things that he pinpoints as descriptive of God's forgiveness. First, it is gracious. God offers forgiveness to us graciously and freely, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, because he is rich in mercy, because he loves us, he offers forgiveness graciously to us. Second is that it is costly. God freely offers forgiveness, but that doesn't mean it is free. God's forgiveness costs nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. God didn't just kind of look at your sin and all of your offense and your rebellion and go, ah, forget about it, no big deal. No, God is a God of righteousness and justice and holiness and goodness. He does not overlook sin and evil because that would violate his goodness and justice. He takes sin and evil very seriously. And so to forgive you and me, it costs the blood, the life of Jesus Christ. Christ stood in our place. He took our judgment that we deserved. Christ was punished so we could be forgiven. And so God's forgiveness is costly. Never forget that your forgiveness costs nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. Third, God's forgiveness is conditional. And this is a hard one. 
God freely and graciously offers forgiveness to all, but that does not mean all are forgiven. Scripture says it is those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith that are forgiven by God. Forgiveness is given to all who repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. But you must receive this gift. You must turn from sin and rebellion and trust in God's provision of forgiveness for you. You cannot earn this on your own. You cannot just minimize and forget about it. You have to turn from that sin and trust in Christ to receive and experience God's forgiveness. Fourth, it is a commitment. When God forgives your sins, he commits himself to you eternally. This is the good news. It's a promise. I will remember your sins no more. God doesn't keep bringing it up. He doesn't forgive you one day and then, oh, no, actually, I've got tired of forgiving you, and so I'm going to put that back on your account. Once forgiven, always forgiven. Once the debt has been paid and you are in Jesus Christ, that debt is gone forever, and God has committed himself to you. And this leads to the fifth point. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. To be forgiven through Christ is to be restored to relationship with God. Here's the good news of the gospel. It's not as if God forgives our sins and goes, okay, great, have a nice life. Be on your way. No, you're brought into relationship with God. You're in union with Christ. You're his son. You're his daughter. You're adopted. You're loved. You're accepted. And now God is your father. You are in his family. You have been reconciled to him. Relationship has been restored. Understand that forgiveness is not the end. Forgiveness is the means to the end, which is reconciliation. This is how L. Gregory Jones puts it. The purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of communion, the reconciliation of brokenness. We cannot miss this. This is going to be so important here in a couple minutes. We have to see that within Scripture, God's forgiveness always includes reconciliation. Sometimes this is used interchangeably. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians and Colossians and 2 Corinthians talks about God's forgiveness as being reconciled to him. And then lastly, God's forgiveness does not eliminate all consequences. The simple definition of forgiveness spoke of being released from legal or moral obligation or consequences. So how can God's forgiveness not remove all consequences? Well, God's forgiveness eliminates and removes the consequence, eternal punishment. That has been removed completely from us if you are in Jesus Christ. However, in this life, we still face the consequences of our sin. And if you are in Jesus, here's the good news for you. That consequence is not a punishment. You need to understand the difference here. The consequence is not a punishment. For you in Jesus Christ, as the book of Hebrews tells us, it's discipline. It's God correcting you. It's God sanctifying you, making you more like Christ. And so he will put you through consequences to teach you, to teach you the pain and the brokenness and destructiveness of sin. He will teach you to draw that out of you, to draw poison out of your body, to conform you and purify you. Now, it might not feel any different, Consequence, punishment, man, it may feel exactly the same. This is why it is so important that scripture informs us. 
If you are in Jesus Christ, you need the word of God to cut into that cloud and remind you, this isn't punishment. Christ took all of your punishment, but it is your correction. And so in this life, we will still face consequences of our sin, but God is at work through them. So these are the the characteristics of God's forgiveness. So why do we forgive others? Because we are in need of greater forgiveness. What is the forgiveness of God revealed in Scripture? It is a gracious offer given freely to all, or offered freely to all, paid for at the cost of the blood of Christ, given to those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith, whereby God eternally commits and promises his forgiveness to you and you are reconciled to him and brought into relationship with him and the consequences of sin become God's means of sanctifying and transforming you and conforming you into the image of Christ. That's what the forgiveness of God looks like for us. So from the why and the what comes the how. In light of our need for forgiveness and the nature of God's forgiveness, how are disciples of Jesus to forgive? Well, the Bible makes it clear that we are to forgive as God has forgiven us, meaning our forgiveness is to mirror God's forgiveness of us. It means the characteristics of our forgiveness should mirror and look like these characteristics that we have just looked at. This is what Ephesians 4.32 tells us. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Then Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. So it's very important that we understand our definition of forgiveness, how we're called to forgive, mirrors the way the Lord has forgiven us. And so I want to look at how we can sort of walk through these characteristics of forgiveness and apply them to us and our situations. But before we do that, let me be clear about something here. First, I want to be honest that this was probably one of the most emotionally difficult sermons to write. Here's why. One, studying this passage showed me how much I struggle with unforgiveness And I'm not just saying this to kind of pose like, you know, hey, I identify with all you guys. Like I confess things to my wife this week, like holding on to unforgiveness, things that go back to like 10 years ago. Things I had no idea I was holding on to and affecting our marriage. Like God was lighting me up this week. And the other thing is, is I know that there is a lot of hurt and pain in this room. Some of you have been sinned against in massive ways. And forgiveness is hard. Getting past the way people have sinned against you is hard and painful. And so me calling you to forgive, I take this as a very sober and heavy thing. Like I'm not pretending this is going to be an easy thing and we can just snap our fingers and it's all fixed. This is hard. This is hard work. And so what, I'm, what I want us to enter into, I do this soberly. And also, there's a lot of misunderstanding and straight up bad teaching on forgiveness that is floating out in the church and floating out in our world. And we're going to look at a couple of those things, but we need to own where we've been shaped by unbiblical ideas of forgiveness. 
And so some of what I'm going to say in a few minutes is probably going to rub some of you the wrong way or sound a little odd or strange. And that's okay. I'm, I'm willing to just say, hey, let's go there together. Let's wrestle through this together. Like, I'm confident that what I'm going to say is biblical, but I'm open to correction. I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong. And so if you have questions, if you want to push back on me, let's talk. Let's meet. Let's learn together. Let's grow in forgiveness together. And so I'm just putting this out here that I'm with you guys. I'm doing this with you. And I invite your questions. I invite your pushback. I invite your wrestle. And then finally, I can't speak to every situation. It's, forgiveness is a messy, complex, hard thing. And, and to try to speak to every little situation and every little nuance in a sermon is impossible. We'd be here for hours. And so what I'm, I'm going to try to do is just lay down some principles. I'm going to paint with a fairly broad brush, even though I'm going to try to nuance a few things. But understand that where you're going to need to do the work of wrestling this out personally for yourself is probably in gospel community or with trusted Christian friends or sitting down with Paul and I. But that's where we want to see this worked out. And so what I'm trying to do is just spur you on towards forgiveness and growth in this, spur you on towards what does it look like to build a culture in a church, a culture in your homes, a culture in your relationships where forgiveness is the thing that you live out. And in that, tease out wherever the Lord takes you. So that's all the caveat before we jump in. So can we agree to all of these things? Can we all join this and, and walk through this together as the church living in community? So here we go. How do we forgive in light of God's forgiveness of us? First, we're graciously committed. Disciples of Jesus are committed to offering forgiveness graciously. As the forgiveness of God has been offered to us, as the mercy and grace of God has been given to us graciously and freely, we graciously and freely offer that to other people. Even when it is really hard to get there, we commit to getting there. We're committed to say, I will forgive because God has forgiven me. We are committed and we promise to another, when you are forgiven, when I forgive you, this means I'm not going to hold on to the anger. I'm not going to hold on to the pain. I'm not going to stew and let it fester. I, com I commit my forgiveness to you. We're committed to a culture of forgiveness in our homes, in our churches, in our relationships. We fight to not let sin and division take root. And so we're committed. We're gracious in this, meaning we don't make people jump through a bunch of hoops and perform for us to get our forgiveness. God did not have you perform and so we do not make others perform. We're open-handed, we're willing, we're ready. The posture of our heart is to say, yes, I want to forgive you. Yes, I offer this to you. So we are graciously forgiving. We're graciously committed. And these things are easier said than done. And that's why it's a commitment. That's why we have to lock in and commit to these things because sometimes we don't feel like it. Second, how we forgive, we bear the cost. Forgiveness is costly. God's forgiveness costs the blood of Jesus Christ 
And we too bear a cost to forgive. Forgiveness costs us comfort and control. We lay down our pain and the identity that we can have as, and the status that we can get as a victim, we lay that down. We lay down our right to take personal vengeance and retaliation. Kind of going back to the case of, of, of Larry Nasser, maybe you saw the video of the one father who tried to re- lash out and attack him in the courtroom and had to be restrained. Look, nobody on this planet that has kids blames that guy. Everybody who has kids felt that. This is where forgiveness is costly because we lay down that right. We lay down that urge. We say, I could wring your neck and bust your face in and no one would think ill of me, but I lay that down. I lay down my personal vengeance. I lay down my rights and my desire to retaliate. I lay down the emotional manipulation and the silent treatment. I lay down the temptation to withhold good. Here where, here, here's where else this is costly. We risk. We risk vulnerability. We risk being hurt again. We risk getting our hopes up that things are going to work out and reconciliation is going to happen and then it falls apart. And so it's costly to forgive. We have to lay down our pride. We have to lay down our comfort. We have to lay down our control. And this is not easy. And this is why we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. This is why we pour out our hearts in prayer, asking God to forgive us and help us to forgive others. We have to rest in our identity in Christ. We have to go to him for strength. When that cost feels like it is too much, we need Jesus to empower us and walk with us. So we are graciously committed and we bear the cost. And third, at times, our forgiveness is conditional. Here's where I'm probably going to get the most pushback. Hang with me. Am I saying that sometimes I don't have to forgive? No and yes. There are certainly times where it is right and it is good for you to just let something go. There are many times you are sinned against by your spouse, by your kids, by a coworker, by the guy cutting you off on the road, where you just let it go. You just forgive that person and move forward. Have you, have you ever not let something go and it spiral into a, just a complete mess because you should have let something go and you didn't and it made things worse? I, I read this story recently of this guy who one time he, he went into this bar and restaurant to see if his friends were in there. And once he saw that they were in there, he turned around to walk back out. And as he's walking out, one of the uh, cashiers said, hey, I need to see your red ticket I guess what happens is when they walked into this bar or restaurant, they give you a red ticket that keeps track of how much food and drink you got and you just pay at the end. And the guy's like, I didn't buy or order anything and so I don't have a ticket. And the cashier's like, well, there's a $5 charge if you lose your ticket. And so this guy just starts screaming and freaking out on him like, there's no way I am paying this $5. And so they call the cops. Cops come, take this guy to jail. Eventually they're like, this is stupid and they let him go. You think it would have stopped there? No. He proceeds to sue the restaurant. Goes to court. Judge says this is stupid. Throws it out. Think it would end there? No. 
the restaurant countersues. By this time, this guy had moved out of the state, and so they have a court case. Guy doesn't show up. Jury awards the restaurant $60,000. Guy decides, hey, I'm not going to pay it. Moves, moves to, I think, Norway to get another job. So he leaves the country. Ten years later, someone shows up at his doorstep saying, hey, you're still on the hook for $60,000. Oh, and there's interest. Now you're on the hook for $165,000 if he just would have paid the $5. But this is what we do. Sometimes we need to let things go. Minor offenses. Otherwise, they blow up and become massive and they consume us and it becomes destructive. So do not forget that sometimes you need to let things go and forgive. However, sometimes a sin is particularly bad or particularly ongoing and persistent or has a particular effect relationally that we need to confront and not just let it go. And so Jesus tells us how this process works in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Now, this passage is specifically talking about church discipline, but there's some principles here for us. What Jesus is telling us is that there are certain times that for forgiveness and reconciliation to happen, repentance must come first. This strikes us as odd because here is what we hear in church and in our culture about forgiveness. That forgiveness is about releasing bitterness and anger, and so I just need to forgive the person and let that go, and I don't need to worry about reconciliation. Like, the, the main thing is that I just let go of this bitterness and anger, and if, if I do that, I'm good. But what is the biblical definition of forgiveness? always includes reconciliation. And so for us to take sort of this therapeutic approach and say this is just about me releasing bitterness and anger misses the full picture of forgiveness. It misses that reconciliation is part of this. And so when we take this approach, we pull forgiveness and reconciliation apart. What the Bible has put together, we pull apart. How would this affect your family if this is the way you approach forgiveness? Minimizing reconciliation, pushing it aside, saying it's not important. The only thing that's important is that I deal with my psychological and emotional pain. What what effect would this have in the church? It would squash reconciliation. It would squash relationships. Yet you might feel good internally, but are you in deep relationship with anyone? Are you actually reconciled to anyone? Second, this focus on sort of a therapeutic view of forgiveness makes forgiveness primarily about my emotional state rather than redemption and reconciliation. Don't miss this. Forgiveness is not the end. It's the means to an end. Redemption and reconciliation. And third, if we don't put repentance in play at certain points, we, minimize the dan- we, we run the danger of minimizing justice and even force unhealthy reconciliation. What struck me so powerfully about Rachel Denhollander's testimony in confronting Larry Nasser is she did not minimize his evil. 
And she made it very clear, Larry, there's forgiveness for you if you repent. And so she clearly held up both the justice and forgiveness. And I've seen this happen multiple times. I've even been experienced this where sometimes reconciliation becomes forced and, and it becomes broken and sin hasn't, actually isn't dealt with and more hurt is perpetuated on people because this is what happens. Oh, you got to forgive the person. Forgive them in your heart and force this superficial reconciliation and repentance hasn't been worked through. And so what does that do to a relationship? It damages it worse because true repentance hasn't happened, true forgiveness hasn't been given, and true reconciliation cannot be worked through. And so if we don't recognize that at times repentance is necessary for forgiveness because it's necessary for reconciliation, oh, we will do damage to true reconciliation. We will minimize evil. We will minimize people's pain. We will minimize the cost of actually forgiving someone. So saying our forgiveness is at times conditional doesn't mean that, we're neg- that we negate, that we are graciously committed. And so you could ask this question, if I don't forgive, won't I run the risk of anger and bitterness? Won't I violate what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 and 15? Don't confuse those instances where repentance is necessary with refusing to give, to forgive. Jesus is talking about refusing to forgive. Very different things. We never refuse to forgive. We never say, hey, I'm never going to forgive you. Rather, we graciously and freely say, here is forgiveness offered to you through repentance. So our posture is always, we will forgive. And at those times when someone has sinned against us so grievously that in order for us to pursue reconciliation with them, they need to repent, then we're ready. We welcome the repentance. We're waiting for it. We entreat them. We want them to repent. And if your heart towards someone is gracious and loving and desires for them to repent so you can be reconciled to them, well, that keeps bitterness at bay. That, that, that keeps you from getting angry and keeps that, that poison from grabbing root in your soul. And also, what did Jesus tell us in Matthew 5, 38 through 48? Don't retaliate. Don't withhold good. Love your enemy. Love the one who has sinned against you. Love the one, even if they have not repented. Don't withhold good from them. Yeah, that relationship might have a a barrier. There might be uh, some boundaries. There might be some brokenness there. But that doesn't mean that you withhold love and serve. You want to combat bitterness against someone who has sinned against you and they haven't repented? Serve them. Love them. Do not retaliate. Have a posture of a willing and graciousness to them to say, if repentance happens, then forgiveness and reconciliation will come. This leads to the next point, that our forgiveness includes pursuing reconciliation. As I said, scripture makes it clear that these two are connected. As God has reconciled us to himself, we pursue reconciliation with others. Forgiveness without reconciliation is not biblical forgiveness. What this means is that when we forgive someone, 
we don't withhold relationship. It means we do not put a barrier between us and that person so long as it is right and good and appropriate. We pursue relationships with the hope that reconciliation is possible. Now, this looks different in different circumstances. And here I want to nuance this a little bit. First, reconciliation doesn't look the same for every person that sins against you. Like if someone you hardly know sins against you, reconciling with that person is going to be pretty superficial, right? It's not going to require deep heart work and developing this deep relationship with them. It can be very simple and very superficial. Sometimes the consequences of someone's sin to us makes reconciliation difficult. Let's say someone sins against us in a way where they go to jail. Well, obviously we can't have a relationship with them. But it doesn't mean that we can't be reconciled to them in the sense that we have forgiven them if they've repented and that there is nothing between us in that relationship. I'm not holding anything against you. Now this becomes more difficult when someone you are close to sins against you in a way that is hard and painful. This takes more work. There's more on the line. It takes more commitment. It's more costly. But our move is always towards reconciliation. Our move is always towards, I want this relationship to be restored as far as it is possible. I want this relationship to be as good as it possibly can be. And so if it is someone that you are tight with, it is your spouse or a friend or your kids, then you are working for a deeper and closer connection. Now, let me also say this. Reconciliation doesn't mean that the relationship is automatically 100% back to as if nothing happened. Even though a person has repented, it doesn't mean zap, they're entirely different. It doesn't mean that the pain that they inflicted just goes away. Sometimes there are right and good consequences in place. Sometimes there needs to be a boundary so this person who has sinned against you can learn and grow and become more of a trustworthy person. And so it's not punishing them. It goes back to what what does God do with consequences? It's about the good. It's about working towards reconciliation in a healthy way. And so sometimes reconciliation means that there will be boundaries. But here's the important point. We're always working towards something better. We're always hoping for something better. We're always graciously offering something better. And so understand that reconciliation is not squashing consequences. It's not squashing the pain and the trial and the struggle. But it's looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, by your grace, And because I am covered in the blood of Jesus, I am going to do what you've called me to do. And as much as it is dependent upon me, I will work towards reconciliation. So the point is because God has reconciled himself to us, we are committed to pursuing reconciliation as far as it is in our power, as far as it is right and good. Now, most sins against you, most sins against you, thankfully, aren't as extreme as that. But it's still hard to work towards reconciliation. And so we need to be committed that our forgiveness includes reconciliation. And finally, trusting God with consequences. Forgiving someone doesn't mean all consequences go away. As we've said, sometimes we are sinned against in such a way 
There has to be consequences in place. Larry Nasser, even though he was forgiven by Rachel Denhollander, still needed to go to jail for the rest of his life. And so we can see these consequences as good things. But here's the other side of it. Getting sinned against means that we are going to have consequences for us too. We got to walk around with the pain. We got to walk around with the scars. We got to walk around with the wounds. We got to walk around knowing that we could be hurt again. And so the question for us and our ability to forgive, here's the heart of the matter. Is God good? No matter how much you've been sinned against, no matter how painful, is God good? And can you trust him with the consequences? Can you trust him with the pain? Can you trust him with the things that you are going through, that he is working in your life to make you more like Jesus? Because when we lose sight of the fact that God is good, then we struggle to forgive because we're going to want to retaliate. We're going to want to hold on to our anger. We're going to want to hold on to our pain. And so we need to trust that God is good. We need to trust him with the consequences that he is at work in our lives. To graciously forgive and bear the cost means resting in the goodness of our Lord and trusting in his provision that he has forgiven us, he has cleansed us, and no matter how much pain and how much someone may scar us and sin against us, that through Jesus Christ we've been washed, we are holy, we are clean, and ultimately we'll be restored fully. That's our hope. That's what we trust in. So in conclusion, I just want to go back to this question of why we forgive. I made the point earlier, because we are those who need forgiveness. But there's a little bit more of a why to it. Commitment to forgiveness reflects a heart turned to the beauty of the kingdom of God. It desires to see the will of God done on earth. It is so wrapped up in the amazement that God forgave me that I want to see others forgiven. God would forgive me and my sin and my rebellion. And I want to see the kingdom of God go forth. I want to see relationships restored. I want to see reconciliation and redemption take place on this earth as it is in heaven. And so we are motivated by the glory of God and the power of the kingdom of God. There's so much pain and suffering and tribalism, racism, sexism, abuse going on in our world. So much division But when we put forgiveness on display, we say that the final word in history, the arc of history, is toward redemption and reconciliation. And when we see the kingdom of God is that glorious, it causes us to want to be a part of that kingdom, to go and put that kingdom on display, to go and testify to that kingdom, that God may be glorified and others may come to know Christ. That's also why we forgive for the glory of God and the greatness of his kingdom. Let's pray.